Hey, all of you out there, it's Shari. And on today's episode, we will be viewing through the looking glass from another angle, unpacking the complex and many nuances of gender identities and how it interacts with interpersonal violence and trauma. Gender plays an important role in understanding both the causes and consequences of injury. According to the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, gender refers to the socially constructed roles, behaviors, expressions, and identities of girls, women, boys, men, and gender diverse people. It influences how people perceive themselves and each other, how they act and interact, and the distribution of power and resources in society. Gender is usually conceptualized as binary, meaning girl, woman, boy, man. Yet, there is considerable diversity in how individuals and groups understand, experience, and express it. Now, take that and what happens when you intersect it with race, low socioeconomic status, and a lack of health access. Then what? There are significant differences in unintentional and inflicted injury rates across the life course. However, with men and boys, typically, they're at a greater risk for both. My two guests and I sat with the idea of, or more so the question, what is a man? This is a question that has no simple answer. How can it? We explore stigma, childhood experiences, and the social supports that are available. But we also question, are they enough? Are they addressing the issues? Join us as we dive into another episode of Injury is Not Equal. Also note that the views expressed in this episode are of the participants and does not reflect or represent the views of Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and its affiliates. I hope you'll join us. Welcome everyone to another episode of Injury is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shari Thompson-Ritchie. And on this episode, I am joined by a colleague and friend, Michael Lewis, who is a case manager for Sunnybrook's Violence Prevention Intervention Program called BRAVE. Thank you for joining me today. I know this is not your thing, but I'm so glad that you are here to join me on this conversation and weigh in on this important topic. It's a pleasure just to be part of this. You know, I see a great future for this program. And to be honest with you, I just wanted to support it the best way I could. My guest today, Casey Chappell, is an impatient caseworker for Casey's house. No relation. Casey's experience has been with predominantly male identifying individuals who have reported alcohol and or other substance use challenges. Casey started his career working in disability and employment services for the federal government in Australia, supporting people living with health conditions and disabilities returning to work. And upon graduating from the social work in, Astro- in Australia, he went on to work for five years in primary health care with youth aged 12 to 25 years, whom were considered at risk or experiencing homelessness. 
Casey relocated to O Canada in 2016 and started working in his, uh, as an addiction case management program that was outreach based across the greater Toronto area. He worked in this position for a couple of years before taking on the Crystal Meth Project in Toronto. You know, we've had some conversations, like actually a couple of conversations before just preparing for this uh, this recording, Casey, and um, I remember I had this aha moment um, after you shared with me uh, this quote. So yes, I'm going to quote you right now. Society tells men that they should be responsible, that they shouldn't be weak, but it doesn't teach them how to be responsible or that weakness is sometimes inevitable. And that's okay. That's a lot of of pressure on young men who perhaps utilize alcohol and other substances as a way of helping to push down trauma and passive emotions. So I wanted to start off with just that quote because I felt that it was so powerful. It was something that I think all listeners could take a look at and be like, am, am, am I contributing to those pressures? So, uh, you know, Let's have you, let's have you um, speak to that and um, I'll pass the mic to you, Casey. Thanks, Shari. Um, doesn't, uh, we live in a society that doesn't give men and in particular young men the chance to experiment with who they are, um, especially when it comes to emotional care. You know, we don't allow young men to talk about how they feel. We don't encourage young men to talk about how they feel. Um, and for a lot of the young men that I've worked with, um, particularly in Australia, um, who were using alcohol and or other substances, um, you know, often that becomes a, a form of escapism and a chance to like process those emotions that they're feeling and process that trauma that they're feeling without ever actually having to address it in a safe and supportive way. That, that's a lot. Because <laughs> now my question is, how can we generate opportunities for young men and boys to um, get to know themselves, be given the permission to be vulnerable, to be emotional. What's stopping that? Even before you ask that question, Cheryl, you gotta really ask yourself, you know, what is a man? Mm. When does that transition begin? Is it age, experiences, opportunities, the fact of having a child, when does a man become a man? Because everything is societal mm. in a sense where they decide when you are and when you choose to be, depending on what you're doing with yourself, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So when do we decide when is it the time to, to, to engage in that aspect of saying you are now officially a man? That has bothered me even as a man myself. You know, was I a man at 20 years old? Was I a man when I started paying my own bills? Was I a man when I became a father? Was I a man when I became less selfish? When was I a man when I was actually started loving? At which point did I actually become a man? And nobody's the same. Nothing's equal on that level. We all go through different phases at that time. So it's now, how do we bring that back to see it on a, on a major scale to say, okay, this is where we start interjecting certain things. That's such a great point. And it makes me think about where do young people look for examples of what a man is or what is constructed as male identity? You know, um, in Australia, 
we don't quite have the same access to media representation that I think the Northern Hemisphere gets. <laughs> um, and a lot of our focus is on sports. So sports is heavily a masculine um, identified arena. Um, our media represents um, sports people and sports men in particular as the idols to look to. Um, and when I think about that, like I think it, particularly in the 90s, um, you know, a lot of young men growing up in Australia were looking towards um, sports players um, for representation of what is masculine, what is it to be a man, what, um, what do I need to do to be identified as a man in this society? Um, and intermixed in, in that, you know, um, we had in the 90s, sports players in alcohol advertising. We had alcohol advertised at sports events. Um, we didn't have, um, you know, back in the 90s, we didn't have chefs that were identified as male celebrities in, in Australia. Um, you know, it was always sports stars and it was always sports stars who would then become, go on to become involved in um, an alcohol related incident in the media and be shown to have no repercussions either like it's just what we call um larrikin behavior so um you know that old like adage of boys will be boys men will do what they do um you know all of that is kind of reinforced by the media and i feel like the media plays a huge part in forming not just young men, but young women and young um, non-binary identifying folks. Um, the media is is kind of where we look to for um, that representation, right? A hundred percent. Thank you. Um, definitely, the media holds uh, a lot of influence, and actually, we have gotten a few um, young males uh, to weigh in on the conversation around binge drinking and the intoxication culture. And actually that came up where one of the boys were uh, mentioning the idea that on TV, on commercials, like you see uh, this idea, this messaging being fed to us of alcohol, substance use, contrasted with uh, some type of sporting event and fun and almost painting the subliminal story that this is how you need to behave. This is, you need, you're a boy, you drink beer, you're a girl, you got this cute little girly drink and you need to be cheering on the, the boys and in order to feel apart, right? So what is a man? I'm not sure if we both can answer that because it's subjective. Let's take a moment to hear from one of our young male youth voices. Media um, and other ways that alcohol is peddled or pushed towards men is also because they use like females and they're either dressed or speaking or just doing things that would appeal to the male mind or just like males in general. There's also like they say things like uh, this is a man's beer or it just has a bar full of men drinking beer. I also feel that I don't really know why, just I feel that it's more towards men and more men drink like hard liquor or like beer more than women do. 
I think as you both were speaking, I was wondering, what are we scared of? So kind of going back to the question of what's preventing young men and boys to be vulnerable, to be emotional, to share the feelings, not keeping it bottled in, especially if they've experienced trauma. Why haven't we made it acceptable for them to come forth and share those feelings? Why even subliminally, why is it being seen that substance use is the answer and the easiest way? It's interesting when, you know, how you word that, you know, we could step back to celebrations. Hmm. Whenever a team wins, football, basketball, all you see champagne, liquor spraying like it was a rainy day, to be honest with you, you know what I mean? And you're seeing this as a child, you know, you're seeing this as a child and you say, no, this is what they do. They're, you know, it's okay for them. So why not us? So we take all these major steps on a smaller scale and, you know, okay, they they could do this so we could do that. And that goes back to the, the, even the, the masculinity of of things and where in these sports and events where, where everybody's viewing and all these behaviors are being um, uh, mimicked. People are afraid to be themselves. They're afraid to be soft, afraid to be timid. It's always strong, the strongest of us all, you know, the best of us. You know, you always see the leader was always fierce. The one that is in charge, he had no fear. So all these are instilled, learned behaviors from a young age. Then again, on top of that, we now we ask our males to be a little emotional, a little aware, a little, a little more check-ins. But do we really want that? Because what society are we now going to ask us to be? Now we want the woman to be a little bit stronger now. We're going to ask them to stand up, to start doing more of what men do, and then let the men fall back. Are we going backwards or is that a forward motion when you really think of it? We could ask that. But does it make sense in, 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 in where the direction is going that we ask our young men? Not that you, know, you've not, not that you don't want to. But if you put that pressure on them to, to become more in tune this stuff, then they start asking a lot of questions. You know, the mind's a powerful thing when you start getting there. Now, now they start saying to themselves, I'm not good enough. I'm not supposed to be this way. But society wants me this way, so I have to be this way. But over here, no, it doesn't work this way. No, I need to be a little more softer, right? And now they get ridiculed for being softer. And now they realize, okay, they made a, maybe they made a mistake. I don't have the answers to it, but we're asking questions that it's a circle of motion. We need to be hard when it counts and soft when it counts. We can't be both at the same time. Just a thought. That's that like really rings true for me. Like I think. I think of that as like very much a double-edged sword, right? And I, I hate even using like a masculine aggressive metaphor for this as well, but you know, it's a double-edged sword. Um, I remember when I first started working with youth back in Australia, one of the shocking things to me was having 16 year old boys come in and access our um, needle exchange. And they were looking for um, syringe equipment so that they could start using steroids. Um, and so we saw this shift away from um, masculinity being um, playing sports and being strong to superheroes and these amazing hyper-masculine heroes in the media that um, were bulked up and super ripped and 
were able to like be super strong naturally. Um, and I feel like maybe 10 years ago when we talk about um, men being asked to be soft and emotional, that just meant that men started using moisturizer and men started wearing pink. And, you know, there was no like constructive way for, for men to, men weren't ever taught to actually sit down as a group and talk about their emotions. They weren't talk, taught to talk to their friends about how they're feeling. They're taught to moisturize their face. They're taught to dress a little differently, right? Like we, we as a society didn't give young men information on how to be emotionally vulnerable and supportive of each other. It's interesting um, that we're going through this, you know, this trajectory of how uh, society has informed the ways in which um, young men and boys are need to show up. And I understand those those tensions and those conflicts. Um, a part of me feels like, and and I know Michael, you've indicated that you know it's a rotational, there's a moving, and there's so much pressure. But I feel like I may argue that they're feeling the pressure already now. This, this model, this, this formula that does change. <laughs> you know, men are wearing pink now, okay? The formula can be adjusted, all right? But I'm wondering if the adjustment of asking young men and boys and allowing them, giving them permission to say, it's okay to be emotional, it's okay um, to, ex to ex truly experience your feelings. Don't keep them bottled up. It's more freeing than challenging. It's more freeing than pressure. It's actually allowing human beings to be human, no matter what their uh, gender identity is. No, honestly, we live in a society where changes are, 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 they fluctuate, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, sometimes even hourly. Our society is, 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 is poised to do their own way of building and destroying at the same time. If it fits in and it works to the advantage, they're going to implement it and push it forward as much as they can. If it doesn't work, we're going to shut it down and be like, no, this is no, this is going to be hurtful for us. No, we don't. We're not going to tolerate it. With that said, how we teach young boys is just like you can't always learn everything in school. If you don't have a parent or some elder, somebody teaching you things, there's nothing more, there's not really much you're going to learn because school has their own agenda while the world has a different one. There's so many things you learn in school that doesn't apply, let's be honest with you. Whether you go to high school, you go to college, university, once you know certain experiences, that doesn't work. The same thing in the real world. There's so many things you're going to learn that it won't apply because we could teach to be the strong, fierce, confident person. And when you bring that to a certain environment, you come off fearful. You come off as aggressive. You come off as just intimidating aspect. So it's the same thing. It's a transition of when does it work for you and when doesn't it work for you? Do you believe that it works for some? You talked a little bit about status where we're performing a certain way in order to showcase that I am not beneath X, Y, and Z or Z. So I'm wondering if class status, socioeconomic status, that's what I'm, I'm leading to, can determine whom can present themselves in a certain way versus others. 
and you know it, it's it's so different because I'm learning as we go to you know I'm not gonna sit here acting like I have all the answers you know I'm like yesterday and my knowledge is different from today I've learned something I'm 24 hours more smarter than the day before right you know every day I look as a day to improve on myself you know you only know someone in an environment that you meet them or a situation that you meet them. For example, if you saw me in a in a in a situation where I was screaming and I was loud and I was like, oh, somebody just passed me or something, like, oh, what's wrong with him? Why can't he be a little calmer? Why can't he be like why he has to be so aggressive? Not knowing the whole situation, but that's the experience that you have with me. So everything you know about me in that experience, that's what you saw. Now you saw me in a more calm and interchangeable, maybe I'm with children calm relaxing going about little things and that's why you say oh he has that niceness to him he has that calm smooth personality he could tone it down a bit it what's it's what you're seeing at so with that said i feel like it's only an adaptation now of how we do things you can't run away from how the society is going to do things but you as a person have to realize okay i have to be this way and that comes with experience and knowledge of understanding what you do, when to do it, and how to do it. That's powerful. Let's let's let let's hold space for for that piece here, and and let's kind of back up a bit. You you talk about because I'm now focusing in on young men and boys that may not have that wisdom, Michael, that you're 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 bestowing upon us at this point. That 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 sight, that foresight of understanding, they're just going to show up and be what they have to be given the environment that they are in and what they are seeing. So for those that are in certain spaces saying they are coming from homes that are quite violent, whether it's domestic abuse that's occurring, whether they've experienced sexual abuse or, or, or violent interactions um, amongst those within their community and whatnot, how does that shape this gender identity that we've been talking about and how this, and I don't know if you want to um, jump in here, Casey, but I think Michael really placed the, the table quite nicely when he spoke about uh, bringing in the environment perceptions, these momentary perceptions that define individuals for a lifetime. Right, because that moment is the moment that must be you. You look check like me. You sound like me check. Okay, so I need to imitate you, whatever that circumstances might be, whether that's in the media or whether that's in real life, in your community. I mean, I think when people don't have um, access to resources, um, and those resources being education. All those resources being social supports in the community that um not to hammer too much on the the media point but um i think and this really ties into people who um have limited access to resources um the media doesn't really talk about friendship um male friendship um when we talk about uh celebrations it's celebrating sports events it's celebrating with alcohol as michael was saying before um, we don't talk about celebrating friendship between men. Um, male friendships in the media are either competitive, um, be that for sport, be that for, and I'm using quotation marks, you won't be able to see, but um, getting the woman. 
um, you know, it's this very like hyper masculine um, narrative and there's never sort of like depictions of male friendships where men support each other. Um, when we see that like reinforced within the society around us, how do we tap in and, and find the supports that we need? How do we find um, people that can support us? How do we yeah. find people to confide in? How do we find people to support us in our times of need? How do we be vulnerable with people and ask for help when we need it? We're not shown those depictions and we're not supported in that way in society. Um, and then you throw on um, things like socioeconomic status where you have less access to chances to meet people. We talk about um, sport as this like great opportunity for men to come together and, and meet each other. What happens when you can't afford the membership fees for the sports team in your community? What happens when you can't access the, the resources that other people get or um, the resources that you see being reflected in the media? And that's interesting too, because you know a lot of black and brown folks are, as young male, are are known to be these super um, athletes. But for those that can't serve those spaces, where are the supports there? You know where you find them? Roaming the hallways. You know where they find them outside in Spoker's Corner, right? No one's looking out for them because they need to have some kind of usability. So you talk about fees. But also um, there's, this, there's this level of like, you're only good to me unless I can use you. That I think a lot of um, young males sense and feel even in the school system. So where it's a sense of belonging if you don't have these super athletic skills. And if home is not feeling good and, and you're not feeling safe in those spaces, you're not feeling safe at school, where do you feel safe? And I think this is leading us to a space of possible experimenting with substance, um, trying to find people that will accept you or considering yourself not to need anyone and just being really upset about the different negative experiences as, as you navigate the world, which I, I'm, I'm leading us into this violent portion of where we've already talked about a lack of emotional outlet. But what's the one emotion that young men and boys are allowed to demonstrate to show? Y'all know it. Anger, aggression. You know, it's, it's fine to be angry as a man, as a male identified person. Um, it's celebrated. Anger is strength. Anger, anger is an active emotion. It moves us into action. Men need to be in constant um, process, men aren't sitting and reflecting, men act. Men are angry, anger helps you act. So tell us a little bit about your experience with young men and boys um, where that all that we've been talking about, social and economic status, lack of, of vulnerability, that being able to, to, to showcase anger, that would be the emotion to, to showcase. How does that all lead to um, health disparities? I guess I, I worked with a lot of young men who, sorry, did I jump in? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
I, I work with a lot of young men who the primary reason for seeking out support with us in a health service was to get connected to housing. So um, a lot of the young men I worked with, um, or they had been picked up by the legal system and referred to us um, as a way of um, diverting from a court process. So what you end up having is a chance to, to work with young men and, and support them, review their health, um, connect with broader health services, but you're working with them on the basis that they identify accessing housing, accessing um, or avoiding legal ramifications as, as a primary motivation. A lot of the young men that I worked with um, had lived in the foster system, had been shipped around from home to home as a kid, really fractured access to healthcare as a as a child, also really interrupted education. So, you know, never had the chance to um, develop meaningful long-term friendships with other people, never had the chance to learn about the risks associated with alcohol and other substance use, are coming to us at the point where they're already drinking already using other substances as a means of escapism it's a drinking is a great way to keep you warm on a winter's night when you don't have anywhere to sleep right so um alcohol also allows you to meet other people it also allows you to feel confident when you've been told for your whole life that you're not worth anything alcohol and other substances make you feel good they help you connect to people when it becomes um survival based and when it becomes um you know when when their focus is just on getting through the day those are the things that help them um and it's hard to access health supports um when you don't even know where to go michael do you want to jump in here well, i was definitely saying you know the, um what casey's saying it makes a lot of sense you know and, and I'm not sure it was most of this in, 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 in I'm guessing in back home in Australia, correct? Yes, it's, 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 it's similar, but it's, it's a bit different in, 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 in Toronto. I, I'm, a, I'm a lovable person of quotes, you know, I mean, I like quotes. I feel like when they hit you, they hit you hard, man. You know, I feel like, you know, you get you, you, like, it's either it's thick or it just falls off one or the other. And one of the most important quotes for, for years I've been hearing even when I was, even when I was a child is that you live what you learn. You know, and, and, and that exceeds for everyone. You live what you learn. Whatever was shown to you as a child, it soaks all in, you adapt to it. It builds you, it breaks you, but it makes you who you are because everything just gathers itself. All the experiences, everything that was instilled in you, whether it was taught through either aggression or in a behavioral way or, or, or maybe with some challenges, whatever it was, it all went into you. The second quote I really like, and this one really got me the first time I learned it, is how you do anything is how you do everything, you know? And that applies for a lot of these young men. From what they've learned is how they've always gone about anything. And anything they do, they apply the same type of way, the same type of tactic, the same type of emotion. And that comes up from the beginning kind of like fitting in and finding themselves. In this generation, nothing's more important than being a part of something and fitting in. You could have instilled in the best school, you could have had no matter what kind of status you are, no matter what it's fitting in, it's, it's priceless, you can't ever buy it. And that would put you in a situation where you would let go of all the things that really made you who you are.
well, you're still living what you're learning, but you're learning that this is what you have to do to be a part of something now. So I have to do this. I can't be with these guys if these guys are always drinking. Unless I'm a drinker too. I can't bond with them unless I'm smoking because all they do is smoke. They're going to think something's wrong with me. If I don't interact with them, they're going to pick on me. I'd rather be part of the bullies than be bullied myself. So all these, all these things come together, makes the direction of a person. Whether they want to or not, this is the direction they're going to go because not only of who they're surrounded with, but the opportunities they're surrounded with as well, which means where they live and the lack of resources or resources that are available at that time. And, 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 and there's no true understanding in it because even as adults, when you grow older, there's still that feeling of fitting in. You never wanted to be the outsider. Now, the inclusiveness is, is, is something that you carry with you because it's something that was instilled at an early age, whether from the, the playground to middle school to high school, you all, no matter what group, even a group, no matter what group, it could be the popular group or the less popular group, you want to fit in. If I'm a book reader and I read a lot, I want to be a part of that book reading group. But if they start smoking too, I want to smoke too because that's what they do. They do what I like, but I have to do what they like. And that comes with a lot of experimenting now as we grow. The only problem with the experimentation, I believe, is when you start experimenting at an inappropriate time of your life. When I say that, I don't say there's no accurate time, and I could be wrong about it, but these are my point of view. There are certain things that you go through as a process as, as growing up as a youth. You try things. When you start doing it as an adult, whenever an adult is considered to be it's an inappropriate time because now you, those are things you're supposed to have tried, know that it's not good for you, know it's not going to do you well, know it's time to move forward to something that makes sense with your life. So now when, when, when it's hard to teach this if you don't understand it now, right? If you're not a person who could step back and kind of say to myself, okay, I had enough of this, or this is not beneficial, or this is not going to lead me nowhere, or this is kind of breaking me down. The strength is not there to withdraw yourself from the things that are not making you a better person moving forward. That could even be the friends that you keep. With that said, a lot of these experiences, experimenting and finding who you are, they all correlate in some way. They connect some way or another in a sense, right? And it's just about finding that, that, that point where you could say to yourself, I'm enough for myself. And if I'm enough for myself, I'm enough for everybody, wherever I want to be. Maybe I'm a little ahead of myself with that as well too, right? But it's just a, sometimes just a thought to kind of catch yourself and, and, and realize it because adults struggle too. So who are we as an adult to say, I can't even discipline myself. How can I expect that expectation of a child? And, it's, and, and we're, we're in a society where we see adults are the biggest child-like behaviors, you know I mean, explained in a, in a loud way. And then we're going to say to ourselves, we have a high expectation for you. Right. They see us. They see that. So we're not the model. Definitely not. But I I hear what you're saying and it's powerful. uh, But I don't know if that is something um, the believing of oneself is something that even adult even have that concept is even being mastered by us, much less youth. And I feel like we've spoken about uh, various motivations that may lead young people 
in a, in a space that is not healthy. And I wonder when we talk about street involved youth or youth that are uh, currently in spaces that are quite toxic, you may simply say, just leave, just walk away. There's so many different questions. What are we not seeing? I feel like a part of that is, uh, I'll say two things. So like a part of that is, um, I feel like we were touching on protective factors, right? So when we talk about experimenting with alcohol and other substances, um, especially as a point of connection, um, we know like, you know, I, I think that it's easier to kind of bounce back from developing patterns of use with alcohol or other substances if there's a bunch of other protective factors that you have in your life that you can draw on that work as a, as a barrier. Um, when you don't have those protective factors, um, it's easier to develop um, using alcohol or other substances as a coping mechanism, as, an, as a form of escapism, um, because you aren't getting that from anything else in your life, and you should be. Um, and I think that's where we draw that line um, between adults versus youth as well, is the assumption is that adults have all of like we have all of our life together. We have the protective factors that we need. We're mature, we're able to pay bills. And so therefore we're able to um, use alcohol and other substances appropriately without relying on them, right? Could you I share with I us some of those protective factors uh, that you are thinking about just for the listeners out there so they can uh, be on the same wavelength as you? For sure. So when I talk about protective factors, I talk about access to income. I talk about access to opportunities. Um, I talk about access to um, social supports, friends, family members that you can trust. Um, I'm talking about um, adult role models in your life, like teachers or coaches, having a house and somewhere to live as a protective factor. Um, I talk about having good health as a protective factor, um, not having a history of trauma as a protective factor. You know, there's a lot of different protective factors that I think help um, a lot of people. And then for those who don't have access to them, um, alcohol and other substances can be disruptive. Thank you for that. And I'm just being mindful of the time. I was hoping that we could all kind of dive into a particular topic that I came across um, while, you know, just looking at some of the research and um, moving towards um, a focus around street involved youth being at higher risk for many different forms of health concerns and harm and abuse and uh, because they're dependent on uh, what they call a street economy, right? Um, so that's sex trade, selling drugs, panhandling, just, you know, ways to get by. Because as you've mentioned, if you don't have these protective factors, a home to live in, then where are you living? Um, what are you eating? Um, who's helping you? You know, so you have to find ways to cope, find ways to survive. There's a thing called survival sex. There's, and, 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 and in that there's possible psychological harm, um, sexually transmitted infections, um, violent interaction, 
you know, after experiencing this, um, if this is, where do they go for help? Um, and is there stigma for those that are entering maybe a healthcare space, whether an emergency room or, and knowing that they don't have an address to give them. Maybe they don't even have a health card. Are they denied even care at this point? Let's, let's dive into that. I will say, I guess, um, a lot of people, a lot of youth that I've worked with, um, I think I'd, I'd sort of spoken to this a, a bit before, aren't supported by the health system, they're picked up by the justice system. And so their health interventions are coming from a justice system, right? Um, and the only other alternative for accessing health is attending an emergency room. And I've worked with an unreasonable amount of people who have gone to emergency who have been turned away um, because of intoxication or who have presented to emergency rooms and haven't had their health needs met because of stigma associated with their presentation, stigma associated with um, their alcohol or other substance use. Um, I've been to an ER where a person wasn't treated for a physical injury because they're the, they were under the influence of, of a substance, right? So. Um, there's a lot of stigma in healthcare still, and I mean, we're trying to change things, but there's still a lot of stigma around um, alcohol and other substance use. On the point of survival, um, I think we were so, I, I was saying before, um, a lot of the young people I've worked with um, rely on alcohol and other substances um, for survival emotional processing, right? Um, because they're not getting that from other spaces. Things like survival sex, things like survival um, drug trafficking, um, things like um, boosting or theft or um, doing those other things to get a couch to crash on for a couple of nights, to um, get the clothing that you need, to get the food that you need. Um, when I think about, um, engaging in risky behavior as a form of survival. Um, what happens for those young people who leave their housing? Market rent in Toronto is what, 1,200 for a bachelor. Um, I don't know any youth um, who are earning 1,200 from anywhere, right? Like you're not getting that at Subway, you're not getting that at McDonald's. So um, what are we doing as a society to support um, young people to access the, the protective factors that they need? Great points. Michael, go ahead. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, you know, I like what Casey, how Casey looks at things, you know, and, and clearly he's coming from a lot of the experiences that he has, you know, in Australia. You know, man, but with that said, you know, I've always kind of look at things in two ways. Overall, I'm, I'm thinking it could be a therapist, it could be um, um, the, the individuals making decisions on, on the community, it could be a resource place, whatever it is. One, if it's broken, if it's not broken, why fix it? Or two, we're going to keep it broken and make it need fixing over and over again. You know what I mean? So there's two ways I look at it. It's the same thing in, in how the individuals of this world, I feel, are thinking right now. Especially in a time right now, before we know we all had a broken system in kind of to support the youths and how to help the youths. It was already broken. All this money they threw, all these services they said they, the youths needed, all these things that applied. 
They said it was okay. This, this is what the youths needed. None of it worked. Now we're in a time where it is even more needed and it's less. It's less broken beyond broken, but there's more that needs to be done at the same time. So it's hard to even understand where to go with this next, right? Because just, just the fact that the capacity of what's going on in a sense where the youth aren't able to do drop-in programs anymore, they're not able to get services from one-to-one -one mentors anymore. The supports are, everything is on the computer now. Like they're probably tired of this in, in a year or two, to be honest, you nobody wants to do this anymore. But with that, with that being said is what do we do next? A system was already broken. Now it's even more broken with less resources to make it broke, to, to, to fix it. So where do we start? It always goes back to education. It's always going to be the key from the start. It's going to be education to the, the, the youth themselves, education to the people who are in charge and the people above them to understand where we need to start from. Because it's pointless with all these resources, all these people are supposed to be doing the same things and nothing is changing. It, it just makes no sense. Why are we paying you? Why are we giving you these resources, this money, all this audience to entertain and nothing's happening? It's a critical time for a world in, in dealing with the youths because like you said, this is a generation where they've not even got it together yet. But we're asking them to be as independent as they can at such a young age. So it's basically we're pushing maturity on them. You're supposed to be responsible for yourself. You're supposed to wake up, apply yourself in school. Don't go outside. Don't interact. Don't, 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 don't. It's, it's, I think it's the word for 2020. Don't. Not do. Don't. Right? And when you're hearing this now, that builds too because you're learning this in your head. It's beating your head. Don't. You can't. Don't. You can't. It's basically the same thing. You can't do that. Don't do it. So now this has become a, now, when, I, when, I, when somebody wants to try something or they even have that little urge to attempt something now, it's at the back of their head already. Don't. It can't happen. It's not happening right now. So it's a way of education. And it's going to be a hard battle moving forward. Because if everybody thought the battle was hard before, you, well, we have not seen nothing yet. And now we have to reach them with the most limited resources as possible, with the smallest of voices and with the least of interactions. And we still have to make a difference on top of that. Michael, you've mentioned some really, really um, great points. I just want to have just some clarity Mm -hmm. uh, around some of the resources that are common. You know, you're referring to the fact that we are currently in a second wave of COVID-19, a pandemic. Um, so for those that are listening, this is what we're referring to. Um, that adds as another barrier, an added barrier to other barriers. So if we could back up a little bit and just um, if, Michael, if you can just share some of those uh, example resources that are um, already in place, but that you are now indicated that is that much more limited to um, a hard to reach population. Well, the funding is there for a few programs, you know, and, 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 and it's a lot of people know a lot of these programs have, have been encouraged to join the ranks. And what did those programs do? What kind of uh, supports did they provide? A lot of things to do with um, group homes, um, um, mental um, um, health behavior, and off support for youth injustice, things like that. When we're talking about programs that were getting funded from last year, that um, we have um, that has to deal with youth in, in, in the crime and mental health as well. A lot of these programs there is not engaging in the way or putting out the way that they need to do, because they they they're 
obviously COVID has changed the whole dynamics of how things are happening. But with that said, like I said, it's gonna be a battle because if the government feel like they could just throw money and that's gonna make a difference, everybody's gonna be all smiles. They have a long line to look at, man, because you know, it's just gonna be building up. It's not changing much. So it's it's a, most of this thing has to be with these community programs. They have to adapt to what the environment is. And I feel like a lot of them don't, I have not grasped to that effect that the youth need a different way of engagement, of support, of interactions. And until that is accepted on a broad level, people, most of these people are just gonna be sitting down getting paid, doing the least they can. Thank you, Michael. Any thoughts on that, Casey? One thing we know um, during this time of COVID-19, there was a lot of information going on, going out there. As we went into full lockdown, um, we were warning adults about um, the risk of using alcohol during COVID-19. Um, because everyone is so socially isolated, right? Um, and yet we don't think about the impact of alcohol and social isolation on youth in our community. I mean, I, I thoroughly agree. Like we, we do not have enough like social supports. We don't have enough like um, access points for connectivity for, for young people. Um, and it's particularly tough in this time. So my question is, um, because both of you are the experts here, uh, what does prevention look like? Uh, and granted that we are in um, a very uh, unique situation and, and you've already mentioned, both of you already mentioned the challenges. Um, do you have any ideas or um, suggestions as to how we could better use our funds or to how we could better connect with these individuals, this these groups of, of youth that are, that need our help the most. Got a couple. <laughs> um, when I worked in um, addiction outreach, a lot of our funding, like a lot of support programs are funded on the basis of amount of um, emergency room presentations and the amount of times that you access withdrawal management. Um, we don't have drop-in, well, we have drop-ins, but we, we don't have um, early intervention services for, for people using alcohol and other drugs. When I talk about alcohol and other drugs being used as a form of escapism for young people, um, what I don't see enough of is a trauma-informed care approach in our healthcare and our hospitals, um, acknowledging that people um, are living with histories of trauma, are living with um, poor um, emotional supports. And so um, we stigmatize folks and we don't look at things from a trauma-informed care perspective enough. And I remember you've mentioned justice intervention. So I, I think this is a great opportunity for us uh, to maybe share some calls to action. We've spent uh, this time discussing the challenges, the adolescent mind. What is their motivation to do the certain things that they do? Um, I think right now will be an, an amazing opportunity for us to close with some calls to action. You've already indicated, Casey, that there need, that healthcare uh, centers need to be leading with, uh, from a trauma-informed basis. Education, education from Michael. Um, but is there anything else uh, that you'd like to leave the listeners with? 
better trauma and mental health support for young men or male identifying folk as well. Well said, well said, Casey. I really like your points, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, on, on top of what you said, I feel like they need to be less of that Eglinton West mimicking. When I say that is that I feel like too many services are doing the same things, too many similarities. There's no separation from them. And I feel like it's just it's just a circle. Like if we're already doing a bunch of this over there, why can't we do some of this more over here? I feel like everyone's applying for the same fund. Services are the same. There's not much of a difference. And I feel like if, if that's going to continue, it's like saying this is all you need, basically. You know, it's like it's like there's no real thought going into it. I feel if there's so many agencies doing one thing, why can't we do have agencies doing the next step to that and the next step to that? If you're coming in here and you're doing the interaction with the individuals that need support, let's have you mentoring over here, supporting you and kind of guiding them. Let's have the other person checking in and making sure that the services are available, making sure the capacity is there and even building more resources to move forward ahead. I just feel like it's too similar some of the services that most of these agencies are part is way too similar. So I feel like that has to be addressed in many ways for it to actually be successful moving forward. And do you think that they're properly informed as to uh, what the needs are of the community? Let's look at this. If we're, in a, if we're in a time of gun violence, anything with a gun violence program is going to be highlighted. Throw the money at them. They, they have an idea. They have an idea, right? So sometimes it's not good to just jump the wave. You know what I mean? Kind of understand what happened. Okay, this is the outcome of it. What was the beginning of it? What led to this leading up to this? For example, it takes a lot for somebody to be committing crime, for them to say, okay, this is what I'm going to wake up and do every day. This is my life. And I'm committed to that. It takes a lot for a person to come. It's just like, okay, I'm going to commit to waking up every morning to go to my job. What's your purpose for that? It's the same purpose for other people coming up and getting them saying, well, this is what I'm going to do. How do we get into that mindset of understanding where they're coming from to move forward first? We can't deal with the, the solution unless we start from the beginning. People always want to put all the solution at the end. It doesn't make sense anymore. Let's find out. Let's 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 put the, the address all the issues before that. Was it the parenting skills? Was it the schools? Was it the, 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 the communities, you know? And I feel like it has a lot to do with many things. I, I, there's, I wouldn't say there's one specific thing. You know what I mean? I think it's many things. It's just like when I, for example, when I went to New York, oh man, in the wintertime, no disrespect. I really like New York. I have a lot of family and friends. The place was so dirty and messy. I was like, ah, oh, it was messy. And I come back to Canada. I'm like, yo, the subway is so clean. The ground is so clean. Downtown is so clean compared. I'm like, yo, it's like two different worlds which means the people in power have taken a position to say, this is all what we are interest lies. We want this place to look decent. We're going to make this a priority to look after the place, right? And when you do that, you see the result. We have to make it a priority to understand these youths are facing some significant challenges. They're facing adult challenges at, at teenager and youth ages, right? And if we're not dealing with them, this comes because of a character and their behavior because they're living what they're learning. And if it works for them now, they're going to apply to themselves later. Lots to think about. Um, I, we've heard so much from you both. Uh, we heard a lot of calls to action, and, and I hope someone is listening. Um, you've mentioned that uh, we need to take a trauma-informed care approach, that there needs to be better trauma and mental health support for young men and male-identified folks. We need to distribute the resources 
better and get to know the issues prior to the negative or the traumatic outcome. We need to make sure that the youth is a priority. And I thank you for all of your opinions, your thoughts, and your offerings today. Thank you for listening to Injury Is Not Equal. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Let's Talk Injury. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe, rate, and review it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's more to come. I hope you'll join us.